We're glad you're here this evening. Tonight, in our Revelation seminar, we are into chapter 13. If you want to follow in your Bibles, let's have a word of prayer as we begin. Gracious Lord, we thank you so much for your blessings. We thank you for many answered prayers this week, too. And as we turn our thoughts to you, we pray for the infilling that only you can give us. For we ask it in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin chapter 13, we want to quickly review what we picked up from chapter 12 last time. Now, in chapter 12, John saw a woman, which represented a pure church, and it was clothed with the sun of the New Testament righteousness. He was standing on the moon, symbolizing the Old Testament. The moon doesn't have light of its own, only reflected light. And that reflected light comes from the righteousness of Christ, as revealed in the New Testament. There were 12 stars symbolizing the 12 apostles around her head. And she was about to give birth to a child, the Messiah. We also learned in chapter 12 that there was a great red dragon symbolizing whom? Satan, right. And it said, with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. And he drew a third of the stars of heaven, or the angels with him, when he was cast out of heaven. He waited for the child to be born. Now, the woman fled into the wilderness, it said, for 1,260 days, a day is a year in, in uh, prophetic prophecy. And she went into the wilderness to avoid the persecutions that would follow her, that the dragon was after. And then we also learned that there was war in heaven. It said Michael and his angels cast out the dragon and the dragon's angels. They cast them to the earth. Satan became the accuser of the brethren. Before he was the light bearer. Now he's the accuser. Where do you suppose he accuses them? Before the throne of God. In the tabernacle of God. He's accusing them in the judgment. The believers overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. We also found out that the devil is full of wrath. Why? Because he knows his time is short. He's going to find an end very soon. The women fled into the wilderness, it says, for a time, times, and half a time. That's the same as the 42 months that are mentioned. It's the same as the 1,260 years of papal supremacy. Fled into the wilderness to avoid persecutions. And then the sign of the woman's children is given there. They are the remnant. They are the ones that he especially lashes his wrath against. And it identifies them. It says they are the ones who keep the commandments of God, all ten of them. Not just eight, nine, but all ten. And they keep the commandments of God and they also have the testimony of Jesus. Later on we'll find that will tell us that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
So we find the gift of prophecy will be among them. They will both know and study and and promote the testimony of Jesus through the prophets, the ancient prophets, but even the more modern prophets. Notice that the testimony of Jesus is not only the testimony of Jesus, it's the testimony about Jesus too. So, Tonight, we move into chapter 13, and as we do, chapter 13 is actually broken up into two parts. The first part talks about the beast that came out of the sea, and of course, we discovered before that the sea, or water, represents people. So these were the populated nations of Europe during that time period, but then it mentions in the second part the beast that came up out of the earth. The earth and the wilderness were kind of synonymous. They represented an area that was not well populated, but eventually would be. And so these are the two beasts that are mentioned, and we'll learn more about them as we go. Let's look at the beast that comes out of the sea. Verses 1 through 10 refers to this. Obviously, the power that was dominating in Europe at that time was the church. And with the Vatican being the focal point of it. And it tells us in verse 1, it said, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. He had seven heads, ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Now, last week, we got into the heads and what they represented. Notice that ten crowns, and on the crowns were the name of blasphemy. Now, what is blasphemy? There are several several different definitions of what blasphemy is. One is one that claims power that only belongs to God. Another is claiming authority that belongs to God. Another is claiming names or titles that belong to God. But the one in particular is brought out by the Jews themselves when they were accusing Jesus. When they were accusing Jesus, he says, why do you want to stone me and put me to death? He says, because thou being a man says that you can forgive sins and only God can forgive sins. That would be blasphemy. So for a human being to claim that they could forgive sins is blasphemy. And so this is one of them. Notice in verse 2 it says, And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, seed, and great authority. Now, it told us last time that the dragon was whom? Satan. And Satan worked through pagan powers. He worked also through Christian powers. The dragon is the one who is behind this beast that comes up. And notice, it mentions that it was like a leopard, it was like a bear, and it was like a lion, 
and a nondescript beast, you might call it, being the dragon, the dragon power. Where did we see that before? In Daniel 7, it mentions that there was a beast that was a leopard, moved fast, and we said that that was the what? The Greeks, right? The bear was the lumbering Medo-Persian power. We find that the lion was Babylon. Notice he seems to be going backwards in order. Historically, they went the other direction. In here, he's going backwards. And behind the Babylonian power is the dragon. That's Satan, who's the one who instituted Babylon. So each of these powers, as we look at them, we find that it's talking really about their spiritual heritage. And this power, this beast that John now sees, has elements in it from all of these previous religions that were practiced by these other powers. In plain words, it brought in a lot of pagan ideas and mixed it with Christianity. It also mentions that the dragon gave him his power, his seat, and great authority. What is his seat? It's his headquarters, where he's located. History tells us that the Roman emperor, Constantine, packed up and moved from Rome to Constantinople. And he left the bishop of Rome basically in charge of the Roman area, that part of the empire, the Western Empire. And so we find that Rome today actually is still the seat of the ancient Roman Empire. It has changed, but yet it still has elements of these other religions that are interwoven with Christianity. Christianity, for one thing, would not allow uh, images and statues, but we find them. This is St. Peter's Square. Uh, We have been there. Matter of fact, right as you go down here, right around that corner, right in there, there's a portico there in that back room. And big bookstore. And in there, you could buy just about anything. You could buy statues. You could buy lives of the saints. All kinds of pictures. The wall is full of books you could buy. I went in and I asked, I would like to buy a Bible. And they said, a what? I said, I would like to buy a Bible. And the lady said to me, I'll be right back. She went and got the manager. The manager came over said, what is it you're looking for? I said, I would like to buy a Bible. He looked at me and said, we don't have any of those. We don't carry those. So we find here in St. Peter's Square, the center of modern Christianity, the bookstore doesn't even carry a Bible. So you will find elements of pagan influences. This Uh, obelisk in the middle, that came from Egypt, you see. And the columns all around here, notice the circular. Believe it or not, that is a pagan symbol. It's 
uh, pagan fertility rites that have come in. It symbolizes the female and the male organs, you see. It's phallic worship. And some of these made its way into Christianity and were absorbed from some of these pagan influences. As we move on, look at 13.3. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. One of the papal empire supremacy would run from 538 to 1798 when there would be a fatal wound that would take place. What happens? This is when General Berthier comes in and arrests the Pope. And Pope Pius VI dies, actually, he dies in jail. He dies in prison. And notice, and I saw one of his heads as if it were had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. All right, in 1798, when the Pope was arrested, George Washington was still alive. He didn't die until 1799. The American newspapers at the time actually recorded Beast receives a deadly wound. They knew. They knew exactly what was happening. And it looked like the papacy was going to be lost for good as a power in the world. But what happened? In 1929, Mussolini makes a pact with the Vatican and the restored to the papacy is Vatican City. Vatican City becomes an independent nation. And the Pope is the uh, absolute ruler of it, you see. The Swiss Guard then becomes its military. Not a very big army, but that little tiny kingdom that's the size of an 18-hole golf course How could it have such power around the world? It was not its physical military power that would give it that kind of authority, but rather it would be its religious influence. And we find that today, nations all around the world send ambassadors over there to to the Vatican. And so we find that it becomes a great power. Now, What is the one thing that the devil wants? He wants worship, right? That's the one thing he wanted from Jesus, and Jesus wouldn't give it to him. He said, I'll give you the whole world, which he had wrestled away from Adam, which actually belonged to God originally. He he said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth if you will only bow down and worship me. Did Jesus worship him? He did not. And notice what it says here in 13.4. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. Did they realize that they were actually paying tribute to Satan? Did they realize they were paying tribute to a non-Christian entity? Probably not. But 
they bow down to the beast sometimes and mainly without knowledge. And they worship the beast saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Even today, we find that it's very hard to say anything to anyone against the church because you are anti-Catholic or you're prejudiced or, or uh, you're a bigot. But my friends, we have to look at it historically. We have to look at it biblically. We're not talking about people. We're talking about the theology and the teachings of the Word of God. We are talking about historical evidence and records. And so this is not meant to be against a people. But the papacy hijacked Roman Christianity. The papacy just grew up among it, among the churches in Rome. And one by one began to take them over. And so we find here, who's able to make war with him, it says. What's going on? It's a great controversy. It's a great battle going on between those who worship Christ, the true Messiah, and those who worship Lucifer or Satan, who is working as the dragon or the serpent through powers, religious powers who use governments to do their work. The church technically hasn't put anybody to death. Technically. But the church has told the rulers, you do this or you'll lose your throne. You do this or you'll be excommunicated. And through the rulers, many people were persecuted. So let's look at verse 5. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things, and blasphemies and powers were given unto him to continue 42 months. Now, 42 months, we said before, is equivalent to what? 1,260 days, right? All right, or time, times, and half time. We talked about that in the last chapter. So it's talking about the same time period, just using different numbers to come up with it. And notice it said he would, that this power, this beast, would speak blasphemies. I believe it was Pope Julius II who said, we are God on earth. He wanted to be called Lord God the Pope. There are many statements where the papacy claims that they are God on earth. As a matter of fact, the word vicar, vicar and vicarious come from the same stem, same root. It means that they take the place of or substitute for God on earth. But let me ask you something. When Jesus went back to heaven, he said that he was sending another comforter. And that other comforter was supposed to represent him on earth, right? So that other comforter was the vicarious filii dei. He was the official representative for Christ on earth. Who was that? The Holy Spirit. So by claiming that title, it's really blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as well as blasphemy against Christ. 
Because now the bishops, even the priests, not just the Pope, but the priests can forgive sins according to the church. They can hear confessions. And these are powers. When, when you do that, you are nullifying the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. Because our prayers are to ascend to the heavenly sanctuary. Christ is the only mediator. And because he is the only mediator between God and man, in the holy place is where he went when he left the earth, and there he receives our prayers. There he applies the benefit of his blood in our behalf. So to claim to forgive sins and to hear a regular confession is really attacking the holy place of God, you see. And so it is attacking the temple of God as well. Look at verse 6. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and them that dwell in it, in heaven. So who dwells in heaven? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? We find here that he is blaspheming, claiming to forgive sins. He's blaspheming the tabernacle of God. He's making it ineffective, you see. Why pray to God when you can get a man to forgive you? He's taking on the name of God when he claims, the name is a character too, don't forget. But when a man claims that he is Christ on earth, that is a blasphemy. And when he claims he is, the Pope is God on earth, that's blaspheming the Father. And so we find that each time you blaspheme God, you are building up towards something called 666, you see. And we'll talk about that later. So beautiful as it is, the Vatican, the whole area around Vatican City is gorgeous, wonderful works of art. But you know, the devil tries to make paganism, he tries to make apostate Christianity as beautiful as possible. But in reality, what is God looking at? He's not looking at the outward appearance. He's looking at the heart. He's looking at the, the truth and how do we relate simply to his truth. That's what he's really after, not the trappings. Look at verse 7. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all the kindred tongues and nations. That kind of sounds like it's quite a, an expanse, right? It sounds like it's more than isolated to an 18-hole golf course. What is he saying here? He says that he went to war with the saints and overcame them. What happens? The saints lose. And as we look back in history, we look at such things as the Waldenses and Albigenses. We find that during the Protestant Reformation, by the way, Protestants also persecuted. It was a two-way street. But many of them had come out 
of Catholicism, and there were some things that they hadn't graduated out of yet. But yet we find that there was persecution of these people during the Spanish Inquisition. Matter of fact, I'm reading about that right now, about the Morano Jews and the Spanish Inquisition and how the church was after those who professed to be Christians, but in reality, they were practicing Judaism on the side, you see. But the thing is, in, what was it, 1391, I believe it was, that in Spain, they had mass uh, persecution. They forced the Jews to, if they wanted to remain Jews, they had to pay a heavy debt. If they converted to Christianity, they wouldn't have to pay that fine. And if they didn't, then they would be put to death. Sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like things going on in the world today? Okay, same tactics. So what happened? 200,000 Jews in the course of 10 years were baptized and became Christians. 200,000. I wonder what would happen, David, if this church were to baptize 200,000 people a year. I wonder if the conference baptized 200,000 people a year. That would be something, right? So all these new Christians, they got out of paying the fine, you see. And before, where they were in the ghettos, now that they were Christians, it opened access to the upper layers of society, even the imperial household. And before you knew it, they were intermingling with the aristocracy. In reality, outwardly, they would go to Mass. They would say their aves. Then they'd go home and practice Judaism. And so, they said, we've got to solve this problem. And so, Tomas de Torquemada, he himself had Jewish blood. He became the Grand Inquisitor. And with Queen Isabella, they began the Spanish Inquisition. Spanish Inquisition was to go into effect in March. And it's interesting, actually it was in March, I think it was in the end of March, it took place about the beginning of March. All of a sudden, the Jews were given a certain period of time to get out of the country or convert and be true, sincere converts. What happened? Some of them made their way to Portugal, to Holland, and so forth. Holland had a big Jewish population, does today. So Amsterdam especially, and some went up into Denmark, and the Danes were very, very receptive to them. From there, they went down to Brazil, and had a big population. And I mentioned to you before about how a few of those Brazilians made their way to the United States in New York and settled in an area called Wall Street. But we find that some of these had to get out of town quick. It's very interesting that there was a fellow by the name of Luis de Torres, Luis Torres, 
and Luis Torres was a Jew. He converted to Christianity one day before he went down and got on Christopher Columbus's boat. And he and some of the other Murano Jews, Columbus himself may have been a Murano. But anyway, they got on Columbus's boat, they came over to America, and Luis Torres, there were two men who first set foot in the New World. One was a, a Catholic Spaniard, the other was a new convert Catholic Spaniard who was really a Jew, a Murano Jew, Luis Torres. And after he was over here a little while, he reverted back to Judaism. And so we find that <clears throat> to get rid of these Murano Jews and the new Christians, as they call them, the Spanish Inquisition went into effect. One of the ways they would identify whether or not a person was a secret Jew, they would go up on top of a hill on Friday night and they would look down on the village and see who had smoke coming out of their chimney because the Jews wouldn't light a fire on the Sabbath, you see. They would also see who wouldn't eat pork. And those people ended up as victims of the Inquisition. And so we find, did they persecute the church? They did. People were burned at the stake. For reading the scriptures, you could be burned at the stake. And so even children, by the way, were uh, imprisoned and persecuted. For 1,260 years, what happened? The church, this power of the beast, made war with the saints, those who were sincere, those who were studying the word of God. And it says that he overcame them. The scripture talks about they wore out the saints. I remember a while back there was a fellow who was telling me about that expression. He said, my father, when I was growing up, my father, when he would take me out to the woodshed, he said, my father took me out to the woodshed and wore me out. What did he do? He beat up on them. That's what he did. He spanked them, you see. And this is what was happening. And these people became discouraged, and many of them fled. Look at 13.8. And all that dwelt upon the earth shall worship him. What is it that the beast power wants? It's worship. You can believe what you want. You can remain a, a Baptist. You can remain a Methodist. You can remain uh, you know, a Presbyterian. You can remain an Adventist or a Mormon or whatever you want. As long as you acknowledge and bow to the will of the Vatican. That's what's happening in Christianity today. And we find here, and uh, listen to their teachings and doctrines. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. Those who are not committed to Jesus Christ will buckle if they are not into the word of God. If they are not into worshiping the God who is spoken of in scripture. 
and upholding the teachings and doctrines of Scripture rather than that of the pagan influences that have come into the church. Where in the Scripture does it say that one is to bow down and worship and pray to saints or Mary? That is not a Christian doctrine, you see. That is an anti-Christian doctrine. Actually, it's a dogma. There's a difference between a dogma and a doctrine. And so we find here that what is God calling us back to? He's calling us back to biblical Christianity. Even Judaism, modern rabbinic Judaism, is intermingled with the teachings of men. He's even calling the Jews to come back to biblical religion. And isn't it interesting, when they come back to biblical religion, when they compare the Old Testament with the New Testament, lo and behold, they find that the New Testament fulfills what was predicted in the Old Testament. They find the Messiah that they're looking for, not the Messiah that men have hoisted upon them. And so it says that it's the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the earth. In this particular slide, you see... Cain's offering on the left side. Well, it'd be your right side. He offered fruits and vegetables on the altar. That isn't what God wanted. He didn't want grape juice. He didn't want banana juice, carrot juice. What did he want? He wanted the, the blood of a slain lamb. Why? Because it's through the offering of blood that sin is purged. You see, and so we find that God, they both were worshiping. Cain and Abel were both worshiping God. But Cain was worshiping in a manner that was not acceptable to God because it was not what God told him to do. And so what is the kind of worship that God does accept? The kind of worship that God accepts is the worship that he has told us the way we are to come before him, that is the way he wants us to worship him, in harmony with the word of God. And so verse 9 says, if any man have an ear, let him hear. Have you ever noticed some people you can talk to about religion and they have the foggiest idea what you're talking about? Did you ever notice that? That's because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And if a person is not a spiritual person, they really don't know what you're talking about. I mean, they're, they're sincere when they say, I, have, I don't know what you're talking about. They're sincere because they don't. It's spiritual things are spiritually discerned. It's the Holy Spirit has to speak to our hearts as we hear these things. And that's what he's saying. If you have an ear, a spiritual ear, then hear what I'm saying to you. Look at verse 10. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. All right. He that brought men into captivity and locked them up in jail, he himself would be locked up in jail in 1798. You see. And He who killed people with the literal sword will be killed with the sword of God's word. And notice also, what is the patience? 
The word patience means steadfastness. Here is the steadfastness of the saints. What is it? It's their faith. Their faith in Jesus Christ. That gives them the courage to face the future. Let's look at now at the second beast. The second beast doesn't come out of the old world. It doesn't come out of a populated Europe. But rather, this is the new world we're talking about. And as we look at verse 11 onward, it says, in verse 11, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. Two horns like a lamb. Well, I know adult sheep have horns. I haven't seen too many little lambs with horns. Of course, I'm not a shepherd. Maybe they do, and I just don't know about it, which is very possible. But notice it had two horns. And it was a lamb of God that was very pliant, that was silent when it was put to death. But this lamb speaks. And when it speaks, it speaks with the voice of authority. And it speaks with a voice of compelling people to do things. This is referring to a new nation that would come up in a wilderness area and it would come to power after 1798. Now, it's true that in 1776, America broke away from the British. They had to go through the War of 1812 yet. They had to go through the Mexican War, the Civil War, But boy, by the time you get up to World War I, America is the power. It's no longer the British. It's the Americans who are taking the forefront here. But still in all, notice the two horns. What are the two horns on the lamb? This lamb-like loving power that was an emblem of peace for the world. Yet, it had two horns. Horns symbolize authority or governments and so forth. What were they? One was they were on each side of the head, the separation of church and state. They're separated. In the old world, those horns blended together, church and state blended together. Whenever you get a blending of church and state, you will get oppression. Look at Iran, where they have blended together Islam and the government. The government is Islam. Islam is the government, you see. They may have different figureheads, but what the religious leaders say, the government does. And notice, the woman rides the beast. When it comes down to it, the church will have the control over the government. But here, it was a separation of horns. Why? It was a land without a king and without a pope. That was very important in the 17 and 1800s. That has kind of fallen by the wayside in modern times. And it predicts that sooner or later, this lamb-like power would start speaking like a dragon. The dragon is Satan, right? So what is this saying? 
It's saying we are going to start repeating some of the same forceful teachings and principles that were practiced by the first beast. Notice also what it says. And by the way, I feel that we are already there. The land that I love, the land that I grew up in. When I was in Romania, giving an evangelistic series there, I had to identify this power and be honest with the people. I love my country. I'm patriotic. I was waving the flag back in the 60s and 70s when it was unpopular to do so. But I also have to admit what the scripture shows to be the prophetic future of our country. That we will start talking like the dragon and being oppressive. Right now, there's a big push that you cannot proselytize. That means you can't go out and make converts. That's what's happening in Russia now. That's what's happening in various parts of Europe. And it's knocking on our doors. There are some official agencies that, for instance, if you're giving out food and you're getting it from a government agency, you cannot propagate your faith with it. You see, I'm not saying we should impose religion on people, but we've got to be careful. Community services and the health message were two prominent areas wherein Hitler made his way into the Adventist church and the Christian church in Germany during the Second World War. And we've got to be careful that that does not repeat itself. And so when we look at the seal of the President of the United States, there are three elements that we need to notice here. First off, it says his office, he's president. Where? His territory is the United States. And oftentimes, they'll have his name embroidered on there somewhere or above it. What is the seal of God? It has the person's name, office, and the territory. Notice in the commandments of God, we find that these are also present. And we'll touch on that in a moment. Look at verse 12. He exercised all the powers of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. Since 1929, the papacy has been growing in power and influence. Under Pope Francis, who is a, he seems to be a very nice guy. He's the kind of guy that I admire in so many ways. But yet, some of the things he's teaching and some of the things he's advocating taken to their extreme, they will cause oppression. They will also attack some of the teachings in the church. So what's happening? The deadly wound was healed. The churches are now uniting together the ecumenical movement. They are now uniting with Rome, promoting a common cause. I heard just, what was today's Thursday? Yes, yesterday, at prayer meeting. I listened to 
a video of a well-respected political leader, actually it was, that in order to promote the uh, environmental agenda, what they are advocating is that one day a week be uh, set aside so that we conserve energy. I wonder which day that's going to be. You're saying, I wonder which day they're going to choose. I heard on the radio today a particular radio commentator, and he was saying that we need to have one day a week as a family day when all families can just be together and not have to worry about going to work and that the whole nation should support that. I wonder which day that's going to be. I doubt it's going to be the Sabbath of the commandment of God. And so we find here that we are living, my friends, in prophetic times. What was once prophecy is today current events and shortly will be history. Notice 13.13. And he doth great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. There are some who tried to connect that with the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I said, see, America brought fire down from heaven. Well, whether it is or it isn't, I think it's talking about more than that. You know, fire from heaven also is a term used for revival, spiritual revivals. But where does this revival come from? It doesn't come from the God of heaven. It comes from the beast power, you see. And what is it? It's a false revival, a false revival. And I'm afraid that in these days in which we live, with the ecumenical movement and everything, there's going to be, come on, let's all believe the same thing. Let's all work together. Forget your differences. Let's unite on social issues and build a better world. And we all need to pray. I think it was interesting that in the Vatican under John Paul II, they had a special day that was for prayer for all religions. And I, if I remember, that was at Venice. I may be wrong on that. But the Pope brought in Buddhists. He brought in atheists. He brought in uh, uh, Jews, um, pagans of various sorts. And he said, pray, let's all pray for peace. Well, why should I pray to Baal and then pray to God? It doesn't make sense. A true revival is praying to the true God of heaven, not false gods. When we look at this, could it also apply to a, uh, a pseudo-religious revival, a false religious revival? Notice, too, in verse 14. By the way, it may be that there may be some miracle where fire is literally brought down from heaven. Now, an interesting point on that, Remember at Mount Carmel, when all the priests of Baal were gathered together, and then there was little old Elijah all by himself. They built altars, and the test was, who is the true God? And so they prayed. 
And lo and behold, the fire didn't fall on Baal's altar. But when Elijah prayed, fire came down from heaven and consumed the altar. And that proved that the God of heaven was the true God. Well, this says that fire would come down from heaven, but it's not coming from the true God, you see. Is that we're going to counterfeit something? What if Mary were to appear as an apparition and send down fire from heaven? Would that prove that Mary is the true God, you see? So we need to be careful of miracles and signs. But nonetheless, there's a lot that's yet before us. Look at verse 14. And received them that dwelt on the earth by means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image of the beast that had the wound by a sword and did live. So what is this saying? It's saying that this beast power, he would use miracles to support our worship of the beast. We find also he would make legislation for all people to worship and support the beast power. What's he doing? He's using a blending of church and state to support false teachings, teachings of the first power. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Ooh, that's persuasive, isn't it? In plain words, as this power wouldn't establish an image to the beast, what was the beast power? What constructed the beast power originally? It's what Christianity and paganism blended with the government so that if they couldn't rule by religious truth, they could use the arm of the law to enforce their teachings. And so we find that's the image of the beast. Is that going to happen here? Is the church, is the Supreme Court going to be supporting things that will actually establish religion, a state religion, even though there's not supposed to be? The only thing keeping us from religious oppression today is the Constitution of the United States. And it's interesting, it's interesting that in the book Great Controversy, it indicates that the Constitution would fall just before the mark of the beast is put forward. The Supreme Court right now, if I may be a little bit off on that, but if I remember correctly, the Supreme Court has three Jewish justices and the remaining six are all Catholic. There are no Protestants. Is it five? Oh, yeah, Anton Scalia died, that's right. So right now it's five. So there are no Protestants on the Supreme Court. But even if you get a Protestant on the Supreme Court, is it a Protestant who believes in the Scriptures? Or is it a person who's Protestant in name only, you see? And we find that uh, most of our prominent legislators today follow that same pattern. Okay, look here. 
Notice it said that there's a death penalty eventually. Now, the devil is very interesting. He, he's a creature of habit. He follows a pattern. First thing he'll try to do is he'll try to tempt you. And if you don't, he'll try to reason with you. Oh, come on. It won't hurt you. What's wrong with it? A little bit. Come on. Don't be a goody two-shoes. Then he'll kind of intimidate you. <clears throat> that doesn't work. Then he'll start to persecute you. And if that doesn't work, well, you know, hey, look, if you're not going to work on the Sabbath, why, you're not going to be able to provide food for your family because all your credit cards are canceled and you don't have any cash. Well, you know, you really can't keep your kids because that's cruelty to the kids. We're going to take your kids out and put them in a foster home until you get established and you do what we want you to do, you see. And if that doesn't work, we'll not only make economic hardship to you, but we will imprison you. And if that doesn't work, then we'll kill you. And if that doesn't work, what's his next step? He joins the church. First, he works from the outside. And if that doesn't work, because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And if he can't kill God's people off through persecution and execution and exile, what does he do? He says, well, I'm going to water down Christianity. I'm going to join the church and work from the inside, gain control of it, and pollute and destroy Christianity so that it no longer has power. It's just a form of godliness without true power and turn them away from God. This has been his pattern through history, you see. And don't be surprised in these last days if this happens again. Look at 1316. And he caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand and in their foreheads. Okay? A mark. Now, why the right hand? Well, first off, in your forehead is your thoughts, right? Right behind here in your forehead is your frontal lobe. That's where you make your decisions and your choices. That's also where your spiritual center is located. When a person prays, it's usually from the frontal lobe, you see. And what is it saying? It's where we make decisions for right and wrong. That's why God wants to put his stamp in our foreheads. And in the right hand, why? Because those are the deeds. What you think your hand carries out. If you want to write a note, you first think who you want to write to and what you want to write about, and then your hand does it, you see. And so this is what he's saying. It's really saying our thoughts and our actions that work together. So this is where he wants to reign. And notice it doesn't matter who they are, kings, queens, presidents, senators, whoever they are. If they do not submit 
to the beast and his mark, they will suffer the same consequences. The same thing happened during the, the Spanish Inquisition. There were many prominent royalty, members of royalty, who fell in the Spanish Inquisition. This is the reason why Revelation 14, 9 and 10, it starts talking about three angels that fly through the air. This is God's last warning message to the world. This is the message that we must be preaching today. And notice what it says. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, not a whimper, it's no secret rapture, it's a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast or his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Why? Because the devil and his angels were kicked out of heaven for disobedience. They were kicked out of heaven for not trusting and having faith in God. And for say, God cannot be believed. We cannot keep God's commandments. And if we join in on his gospel, then we join in on his reward. And his reward is destruction. That's what the wrath of God is. So when we talk about the mark of the beast, Revelation thirteen seventeen. notice what it says here and that no man might buy or sell. You notice the economic factor there? Don't be surprised that if there's a national Sunday law passed, if you don't observe it, your credit card won't be much good, you see. I remember back in the 70s, remember they had alternate days when you could buy gas, odd days and even days, Actually, that kind of thing can very easily be revived during the Second World War. They had ration cards. But you know, all a person has to do is yank your, your number out of the uh, computer, and you're not going to buy or sell. Your, your credit card would be canceled, right? And so we find here that we cannot buy or sell. And save he that had the mark. Only those who obeyed those laws would be acceptable. Or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Now, what is this talking about? Let's look at verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. The man who is leading out. It's actually the title of the man who is leaving him out. And his number is 603 score and six. Now, how much is a score? Four score, and uh, that was Abraham Lincoln. But how much is a score? 20. Three score would be 60. So, 660 and six. That comes up to the number, of course, of 666. Notice what God says in Hebrews 8.10. I will put my laws in their minds and write them in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is what the devil wants to do. He wants to put his number on us. 
And notice what it says in Revelation 7, 3. Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the tree till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. So really, in the Bible, there are two seals that are mentioned. One is the seal of God. The other is the mark of the beast, you see. I like to call them the mark of the beast and the mark of the best. And God wants, in both cases, we find that they're competing for the same thing. The battle in the great controversy is a battle for the mind and the heart of men. It's not for governments. It's not for, for economic benefit or political power. It's for the hearts and minds of men. God wants men's hearts and minds to be obedient out of love and service to him. The devil wants his there, and he's going to push it on you, whether you like it or not. He's going to force it on you. Notice what it says in Revelation 14, 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. The kind of faith Jesus had and faith in Jesus. And so we, Jesus had faith in the Father. We ought to have faith in him. This is the identifying mark of God's people in the last days. They keep the commandments of God and they have the faith of Jesus. And in so doing, they will avoid the mark of the beast. The number of perfection is seven, right? If you are perfectly acceptable in the eyes of the Father, that's a seven. If you're perfectly acceptable in the eyes of Jesus, that's a seven. If you're perfectly acceptable in the sight of the Holy Spirit, that's a seven. That's a seven, seven, seven. What is a six? A six is a seven with something missing, right? And... How many days were the literal creation? Six. That, that was to create the natural world. But the creation week is seven because one day was to create the spiritual man. You see? The natural man in six days. So what is the mark of the beast? It's advocating human um, will rather than the divine will. And so what is it that God wants? God wants us to be in harmony with what he has declared to be his commandments. All ten of them. And as we look at the, the commandments of God, look at Daniel 7.25. It says, and he shall think to change times and laws. So this beast power, the first beast power, he would think to change times and laws. He would think he had the authority over the commandments of God. I actually had a priest tell me that, that the church has the authority to change the commandments of God. My friends, you can think that all you like, but I don't think God thinks that. You see... To change the laws and times. You know, we count time from 12 o'clock to 12 o'clock. The Bible counts it from sunset to sunset. 
At Christmas, we revert back to biblical times. You ever stop to think of that? When does Christmas begin? On the 24th, when the sun goes down, right? By the time you, the sun goes down on the 25th, Christmas is over and everybody's ready to head back to work, you see. And so there are times that we observe that. We do something similar with New Year's, don't we? New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. But the rest of the year, we go 12 o'clock to 12 o'clock. Why? We're following the Roman and the um, Babylonian concept time sequence the rest of the time. He would think to change laws. The commandments of God are the laws of God. Did the church ever do that? The church admits that it chiseled out, it cut out the second commandment. I just showed you Vatican Square, which isn't square, it's round. But anyway, in Vatican Square, all those statues and images that are around there, do you realize that some of those statues are older than Christianity? What does that mean? They were pagan statues that got baptized. So now you can worship them. You couldn't worship, you couldn't worship that statue in the uh, St. Peter's Basilica, that black statue, because that was a statue of Jupiter. But we baptized it, and now that's a statue of Peter. You can worship it. Are we playing semantical games? They took the commandments out. You look at a catechism, and you'll find the second commandment isn't there, you see. And what happened to the, uh, the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, period. That's all you get. It's up to you to guess which day is the Sabbath day. But if you read it from the scriptures rather than the catechism, it tells you specifically it's the seventh day. That is the Sabbath. Look at Exodus 20, 8 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Not to go to your favorite football game, but to keep it holy. And I'd like to put a W with that. Holy, keep it. Okay? Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Now, what is that saying? That's saying if we say, well, Sunday's my day of worship. I'm going to rest on Sunday. I'm going to work on Saturday, but I'm going to take Sunday off. You're still violating the commandment because the Bible says that's a day of work. Right? Well, I keep Monday. Go ahead, keep Monday. But the Lord's not resting. You're resting, but the Lord isn't. You see, he's working already. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. If in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, uh, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbath to be a what? To be a sign, a mark between them and me. It says in Ezekiel twenty twelve that they may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Where does he sanctify them? In the sanctuary, you see. It's a sign. The Sabbath is a sign. These are my people because they are obeying my commandments. Now, almost any religion will tell you, well, you shouldn't be killing each other. They'll tell you, well, you shouldn't be stealing from each other. You shouldn't be committing adultery. 
You shouldn't be telling uh, bad tales about your neighbor. Where do they disagree? They disagree on which day to keep. And that's why he says the seventh is a sign or a seal of those who are truly keeping my commandments. Hollow my Sabbaths, and they shall be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. So the Sabbath is a sign. It's a mark, boom, right in the forehead to tell us why do we not work on the Sabbath? Because the Lord told us not to, period. That's the reason, the whole reason. Okay, and look at the next one. The Sabbath then becomes the seal of God. Now, does the church, and by the way, going back to that, the Sabbath has the seal of God. It says, I am the Lord your God. What is my position? Creator. And what territory did I create? Heaven and earth. It's the only one of the commandments that have the seal in it, just like the presidential seal. And so we find here, does the church know this? Look at the Converts Catechism, page 50. Which is the Sabbath day? Answers? Saturday is the Sabbath day. This is a Catholic publication. Uh, The next question. Why do we observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Because the Catholic Church transferred the solemnity from Saturday to Sunday. It doesn't say anything about the Bible or the Lord. It doesn't say anything about the apostles. It says the church did it. Okay? Notice Faith of Our Fathers, a book I have at home. Matter of fact, I have both of those. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and this is a Catholic book. You may read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you will not find a single line authorizing the sanctification of Sunday. The scriptures enforce the religious observance of Saturday. The church openly admits it. Why? Because the changing of the day from Saturday to Sunday is the mark of their authority over the commandments of God, which is blasphemy. Okay, look at this one, Catholicism and fundamentalism. Fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday, yet there is no evidence in the Bible that corporate worship was to be made on Sundays. The Jewish Sabbath, or day of rest, was, of course, Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the resurrection. Now, that's another very interesting topic, but I'm not going to get into that right now. But, so, basically, they accuse Protestants who keep Sunday of being basically closet Catholics. Because they have actually openly said this, and I have quotations. You say you keep the Bible and the Bible only as the basis of your faith. Why are you keeping Sunday? There's no authority for you keeping Sunday in the scripture. Look at St. Catherine's Catholic uh, Church, Sentinel. And it says this in 1995. Perhaps the boldest thing the most revolutionary change the church ever did happened in the first century. The holy day, the Sabbath, 
was changed from Saturday to Sunday, not from any directions noted in the scriptures, but from the church's sense of its own power, its own power. It would think to change times. People who think that the scriptures should be the sole authority should logically become Seventh-day Adventists. This is a Catholic publication. I didn't say that. They said it. They said if you're going to be consistent that you're building your teachings and doctrines on Scripture, then you should become a Seventh-day Adventist, you see. Because it's a logical conclusion that you will keep the biblical Sabbath instead of Sunday, for which there is no biblical authority. And look at this letter from uh, C.F. Thomas. This is 1895, 100 years before. Of course, the church claims that the change was her act. And the act is the what? Is the mark of her ecclesiastical power and authority in religious matters. He's claiming that Sunday is the mark of the beast, the mark of the Catholic Church to change the commandments of God. God says, I do not change. And what I say, I mean. And so we are not wrong, we are not amiss to say that the changing of the Sabbath is the mark of the beast because the church itself admits that. Pope Benedict the 16th said, he says in Latin as well as in English, without Sunday worship, we cannot live. Now that's Benedict the 16th. He's still alive. And he says, we can't live without Sunday. Well, my friends, if he can't live without Sunday, that means he doesn't think the rest of us can live without Sunday. Look at John Paul II. In 1998, he said, Christians will naturally strive to ensure civil legislation respecting their duty to keep Sunday holy. Civil legislation? What is that saying? It says Christians will do all they can to enforce, by law, Sunday legislation. It's their duty to do so. Now, all we need to do is get our legislative bodies filled with people who are of the same mindset and you will have a blending of church and state. And in so doing, you will be establishing the 666. What is 666? It's very interesting, that number. In some places, you will find it's calling the the church Romaneth in Hebrew. Romaneth adds up to 666. Uh, There are other titles that the church has. It will add up to 666. It's interesting that this number 666 and the titles of the church or the, the, uh, the papacy, Latinos, when it's added up, it will come up to 666 in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, Sanskrit, and I think Aramaic. It still comes up to 666. That's kind of a hard trick to get all these different languages to come up with the same title, the same numbers. Now, how is it calculated? 
The papacy, one of his titles is Vicarious Filii Dei. Okay. Notice the Roman numerals and their English equivalents. You add up the first column and a hundred and six and six. All right. That's 106. That is 53, right? And you've got 501. Add those all together, and I think I got my slides reversed there. There it is, 112. I miscalculated. You, 112, 53, 501, and you come up with 666. That is the, one of the official titles of the Pope. And so... Notice what it says in 13.8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. What does the devil want? He wants worship. And he's going to work through a church to do it. And he's going to get his, all the daughters of that church ecumenically to come back together to help establish him as the object of worship in the last days. And his commandments over the commandments of God. Look at Matthew 15, 9. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Yes, my friends, the devil is busy at work, either tearing down the commandments of God or building up his own false commandments. But you know, the time is coming when people are going to be forced to observe the commandments of men. But God does not want forced worship. The devil does. God doesn't want forced worship. As a matter of fact, he says in John 14, 15, he gives us the motive for worshiping him and keeping his commandment. If you love me, keep my commandments. God is love. And because of this, if we truly love him, we will do what he wants us to. Revelation 13, 16, and 17 says... And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand, that's their deeds, in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. He cannot buy or sell save he that had the mark, or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. All right, John 4, 24 says, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What is the truth? Jesus said, I am the truth, and this Bible is the truth. It's the word of God. What is the basis of our unity? Not politics, not popularity, but we are to have that as our basis. The word of God and the Savior that that word talks about. And so, as we come to the end of 13, it's really bringing us forward into modern times. We're past 1929. We're past 1798. We are now in the times in which we live. And some of these very issues are happening today. So, as we summarize, John saw a beast rise out of the sea with seven heads, ten crowns, and it received a deadly wound that healed. It symbolized Rome. 
The second beast was lamb-like, but it spoke as a dragon. The saints were persecuted for 42 months, or 1,260 years. No man could buy or sell unless he had the mark, the name, or the number of the beast in his forehead and hand. And the number of the beast is 666, which is the number of the beast's name or title. That summarizes our chapter. So, it's time for a quiz. At the back of your packet, you will see a quiz sheet. Okay? An answer sheet. And let's look at this. Quiz 13. Number one. The first beast of Revelation 13 had characteristics of the four beasts of Daniel 7. True or false? Number two. The beast had a fatal wound that was healed, true or false. That's in reference to the first beast. Number three, the first beast gave power to the dragon, true or false. Number four, the first beast, it spoke blasphemy for 46 months, true or false. The fifth question. The second beast looked like a dragon but spoke as a lamb. True or false? The bonus question. The first beast made all men receive the mark of the beast and the number 777. True or false? Okay, got them all. Let's look at our answers. Number one. The beast of Revelation 13 had characteristics of the four beasts of Daniel 7. That's true. The beast had a fatal wound that was healed. That's true. The beast gave power to the dragon. The dragon gave power to the beast. Okay, so that was false. All right. It spoke blasphemy for 46 months. True or false? 42 months. Okay, now 46. So it's false. Number five. The second beast looked like a dragon, but it spoke like a lamb. It looked like a lamb, but spoke like a dragon. So it's false. All right. The first beast made all men receive the mark of the beast and the number 777? 666. Okay, how many got them all right? Hey, there you go. You get your gold star tonight. All right. As we close tonight, read over chapter 6 again with the material I I gave you, and then read chapter 14 for next week. And also, invite somebody to be with you.